0: Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Plimming, Warden of Cranmer Hall. And in this season of Talking Theology, it's my privilege to bring you some of the most interesting theological thinkers today, exploring the relationship between science and faith. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo, and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. Why is genomics one of the most exciting areas of scientific discovery today? Where is God to be encountered in the study of the human genome? What role do faith and doubt play in scientific exploration? And how do genomic discoveries invite us to worship a God who gives us room to change and grow? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Dr. Praveen Setapathy. Praveen is an Associate Professor of Biomedical Sciences and Director of the Centre for Vertebrate Genomics at Cornell University. And our title today is, How Does Study of the Human Genome Add Surprising Colour to Our Vision of the Creator God? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Praveen Satopathy, welcome to Talking Theology.
1: Hello, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Praveen, I wonder if you would be
0: kind enough just to tell us a little bit about yourself, your own academic journey, as well as your current role and the sort of things you find yourself researching at the moment. Give us a sense about what your life so far has looked like.
1: Sure. So, you know, I started my scientific journey as an undergraduate at Cornell University. I actually started as a major in computer science. This is the late 90s with the boom in IT and all things sort of computing and technology oriented. It felt as though no matter what sector I went into, there would be a need for individuals with skills in computing. Um, But what I found is that I was not really passionate about computer science itself. I found it to be a valuable set of tools and was important to gain skills in that area. But I was still searching for something that I felt more passionate about. And I kind of hearkened back to my high school years, where I remembered that Biology was something that I had fallen in love with at one point. We had an opportunity as high school seniors to investigate a human cadaver. And while that was off-putting for some, it was invigorating for me. And I think the reason for that is because we'd spent years studying about the human body in textbooks, but it was abstract. We never really got to see the inner workings. The opportunity to see the inner workings was enlightening and inspiring. So I I decided to give biology another chance, and I never looked back. At the turn of the millennium is where the Human Genome Project was really taking off, and it started to become clear that there was going to be a need for individuals who could deal with large data sets. Volumes and volumes of data were being generated in this new field of genomics. But the bottleneck was really, how do we analyze this data? How do we make sense of it in order to reveal new biological insight? And it appeared that there would be a wonderful marriage between the analytical and computational sciences and biology. And so I went off and did a PhD program in exactly that field, which was very new at the time at the University of Pennsylvania. And having gained skill sets at the interface of those two fields... I realized that I wanted to apply those skills to human health, and that's where it took off.
0: And Tell me, what's that look like in terms of this particular sort of research you're working on at the moment, Praveen, and, and how you are helping address those questions?
1: Yeah, so we're really intent on understanding how certain diseases develop and progress in, in individuals today. So these are diseases that affect many of our loved ones, uh diabetes inflammatory conditions of the gut called Crohn's disease that some listeners may be aware of, or uh, malignancies, cancers of the colon or of the liver, which are very common worldwide and uh, continue to be very pressing concerns. There's been a lot of research in the study of those diseases, but genomics is providing a new powerful way to try to understand what's going on in the early stages of the development of those diseases and how they might progress, and whether we might be able to identify ways in which to regress those diseases in order to alleviate the suffering. So using tools from genomics to be able to better understand the progression of these diseases and then leveraging that information to hopefully be able to develop more effective therapeutics. So on any given day, we might be analyzing copious amounts of genetic data that we've collected from individuals with these diseases, hoping to find patterns in the data that offer new insight about what might be going on in these conditions. Or on another day, We might actually be testing some of those hypotheses with models of these diseases in the lab. They might be cell models in a dish, um, or they might be animal models of the disease, sort of getting closer to how it affects the whole organism. So the work in our lab really spans the entire gamut of what you might think about in biology, everything from computational sciences to analyzing genetic data to doing cell biology and molecular biology and cells in a dish to understanding mouse and other kinds of animal models of these diseases as a means by which to mimic what might be happening in humans.
0: You've given us a fascinating insight into what your own research in genomics involves and the impact that it has the potential to have. You've also reminded us about the beginnings of the Human Genome Project back in the turn of the millennium. Just give us that overview about just the scope of genomics as a whole and what it involves. I wonder if you could give us a sense of just the the sheer scale of the field in which genomics is having an impact, and perhaps pick out some of the pressing issues or questions that you find you're facing as as a scholar and researcher in that area.
1: Absolutely. When I talk about DNA and our genome, I get goosebumps every time, even though I do it almost on a daily basis. And I'll tell you why. The human DNA is in almost every cell of the human body if you were to take the full stretch of DNA from just one cell in our body, just one cell, it would stretch end to end about six feet, which much to my chagrin is taller than I am. (laughs) Um, If you were to take the human DNA from all the cells of our body and stretch them out end to end, um, it would be hundreds of millions of miles. I mean, that's going to the sun and back many times over. It's unbelievable to me, almost unfathomable to me, that that amount of information is crammed inside one human body. And it's not just stuffed away, it's able to control the way that our cells behave and work in all the ways that we need them to, right? So there's this incredible uh, method of packaging and controlling the function of DNA that I think really excites scientists that are working on on genetics and genomics. At around the turn of the millennium, when the U.S. president announced the success of the first draft of the human genome, he called it the most important and most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. And Francis Collins, who was the director of the Federal Human Genome Project at the time, followed up by saying... It was as though we had discovered an ancient parchment that we had been looking for for a long time, but found out that it was written in a language that we barely understood. Um, And I think what he meant by that was, this is just the beginning. We've uncovered the full sequence of the human DNA, but what did it mean? What was the story that it was telling us? And how could we leverage the information that's newly gained from the full sequence to better understand why some people are predisposed to diseases that others aren't. And can we use that information to be able to develop better therapies for those individuals? So he saw it as the beginning of something really wonderful that we could do for humanity and not just the end of something. It's that beginning that I'm a part of, that my research is a part of. I get to study that genome, try to understand what it's telling me, identify patterns in the genome, and from there determine what I can glean from that about why certain diseases develop in some individuals with greater predisposition than others. One of the other really fundamental questions in genomics that excites me is if the genome contains the instructions to tell a cell how to behave, and the heart cell has the same genome or the same set of instructions as a brain cell, How is it that the brain cell knows to do something different than the heart cell? This is a fundamental question in biology, and we're still working on that. But I'm the director of a training program here at Cornell University in a field called developmental genomics. And the idea is to really understand how how does that happen during the process of development? What is that magic where, despite the same set of instructions, cells know how to behave differently? What it boils down to is that imagine that the DNA has instructions from A to Z. Somehow, the brain cell knows it's only supposed to execute A, B, and C, whereas the heart cell knows it's only supposed to execute X, Y, and Z. And you can envision that things might go wrong if the heart cell gets confused and starts executing A alongside X, Y, and Z, or vice versa that's really the beginning or the initiation of disease, right? These cells get confused about which instructions they're supposed to be executing and to what extent. So figuring out how they even know that in the first place seems to be really important for understanding how things might go awry and to fix them in the context of disease,
0: That's a fascinating insight into that huge territory and that, as you say, the beginning of the story, the beginning of the narrative that you're inhabiting, Praveen. You're doing that as a person of faith, as a person of Christian faith yourself. And I wonder, could you just explore that story again with that perspective of what it felt like for you as a Christian in this field of genomics and developmental genomics in particular? and how that has informed that navigation of this exciting story.
1: There are two parts to that story for me. The first part is one of loneliness. Getting into this field, there are all kinds of questions that emerge that are challenging for someone who hasn't really thought deeply about them before in terms of the theological implications. What do we do with the fact that littered throughout the genome appear to be evidences for natural selection and evolutionary processes? How do I wrestle with that as a Christian that may have come from a community that assumed an atheistic model of looking at the world? So all kinds of natural questions arise, and I think it is important to wrestle with those questions. I think progress, very little progress is made, whether it's in science or in faith, if we don't genuinely wrestle with hard questions instead of setting them aside. But the loneliness was that I didn't have a community to wrestle with regarding those questions. I felt I was really fighting a battle, but was by myself. How much lovelier and enriching and stimulating it would have been had there been people in the academy or people in the church who felt a willingness and an interest to want to wrestle with those questions. Some either felt as though the, the story had already been written, these are contradictory ideas, and there are no questions to ask. Or some just thought, you know what, that's just getting into dangerous territory and I don't want to think about it. Right? Neither one was satisfying to me, spiritually or intellectually. So I struggled to find community in the beginning of my wrestling, and that's one part of my story. Another part of my story, which is where I am today, right, is finding such beautiful, enriching truth about God in the midst of my study of genomics. And let me just give you one, I think, compelling example. What we've learned in the study of genomics is that littered across our human DNA are sequences of DNA that are not human at all. They're actually viral sequences. So sometimes when viruses infect us, this is something we're thinking about a lot these days with SARS-CoV-2, but different kinds of viruses, when they infect us, they can integrate into our own genome. And that's a a strategy that the virus uses to try to hijack our own machinery to uh, enable Hmm. its own reproduction. But we can see, our our human DNA is kind of like a fossil record. We can see instances of where that has happened in the past. So you can read along the human DNA and say, oh, suddenly I've hit across a sequence that isn't human originally. We have maybe co-opted it since then, but it was actually a piece of viral DNA that integrated into us. Well, there's really good evidence that we have co-opted some of these original viral sequences for important functions in our own body. One interesting example is how an original viral sequence actually seems like it might be really important for the development and the function of the placenta, which I'm sure most of your listeners appreciate is really critical for the nourishment of a growing human baby in the mother's womb. It's fascinating to me that the development of such a critical organ may have depended on the integration of a virus into our genome. To me, this does not take away from the fact that scripture teaches that God fashioned us in our mother's womb. It just actually adds a surprising color to it that I would not have originally anticipated. Who is to say God can't use viruses, other parts of his creation, in order to make that happen. So it widens my perspective of God. It gives me a fresher sort of uh, perspective and look at who he is and how he might do things. And I think he's just constantly surprising us. And the study of genomics can reveal that is is a wonderful thing.
0: That's a fantastic example, Praveen. I wonder you mentioned about the fact that this second part of your story is that it enabled you to see beautiful, enduring truths about God. What's it required of your faith, Praveen, to be open to that? Because you mentioned the fact that some people felt that the story was already told and some people who felt that it wasn't even a story worth investigating. What's it required of your faith to be open to those surprising colours, to use the term that you used, about how God has been at work in God's world?
1: Yeah, I think it takes a couple of things, Philip. It's a really, really great question and a nice way to frame it. I think first and foremost, it requires a willingness to express doubt. To me, the expression of doubt is not the lack of faith, right? But it's a yearning to seek out more faith. And I think if we're not honest about the doubts that we have, and I think we all do, if we're not honest about those, what ends up happening and I say this from personal experience, I've done this myself in my earlier years, we start drawing these fences and we say, okay, this is as far as we're willing to go. And we're not willing to go into some unknown, unfamiliar territories. That's operating out of fear, not operating out of faith. So we like to use the language of faith, but I think sometimes if we're really honest with ourselves, it's fear more than anything else. And that, to me, gets to the heart of something God says in Scripture. He says, perfect love drives out fear. And so if I'm operating out of fear, I'm afraid that I will not be able to really appreciate and resonate with his love for me. So I must shed fear. I must be willing to say, I'm willing to go wherever as long as I am going with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) There is nothing that I can't wrestle with together with him. So I think it's a willingness to doubt, a willingness to share those doubts, and not feel as though God thinks any less of us. I think he expects that of us. And I think he actually uses those times. If those doubts are honest, I think he uses those times to draw us closer to him in ways that we may not otherwise. So I think that's one thing that it really requires of our faith is a willingness to doubt, right? Related to that is this notion of certainty. I think it's very natural, it's human nature to be formulaic and to feel as though real faith is when we are 100% certain about something. This is related to the issue of not expressing doubts, but I think it's a myth. It's hard to actually be truly 100% certain about anything, even in science, even in science where we talk about how objective everything is and how fact-based it is. The reality is we are simply accruing evidence in favor of one explanatory model over another. And we might do that to such a compelling extent that at some point it just feels like we're certain about it. But if we're really honest, we're just saying it's just a far better explanation than really anything else we might come up with. Honestly, this is the way that I think about my faith and my relationship with Christ, right? You know, taken together scripture, my life experience, you know, my prayer life and what I see around me in the world, the ways in which I might assess the truth claims of scripture, taking all of that into consideration, the divinity of Christ and who he is to me as Lord is a far more tenable model than really anything else that I had at my disposal at the time. But then following the decision to become a Christian, you develop a personal relationship. And there's nothing more powerful than a personal relationship to cement the leap of faith that one takes. But it's not quite the same as certainty, right, the way that we talk about it. So I think a willingness to live in that gray space a little bit and not feel like, It's done. It's either a one or a zero. End of story. I'm not thinking about it anymore. I think that actually damages our relationship with God and prevents us from seeing him in our other endeavors like genomics.
0: You've articulated the attributes of faith that you need to inhabit in order to pursue scientific discovery. I wonder if I can push that question even further and say, therefore, what is it about faith that contributes to, and complements, scientific discovery? And how does that happen?
1: I think probably the most important contribution that faith makes in my own scientific endeavors and discoveries, science is extraordinarily powerful at asking questions about how. So if you've got a particular phenomena, and you want to understand how it happens... There are ways via the scientific method and experimentation thereof, where we can come to the development of one or more models that provide some explanation about the mechanism. How is this happening? But science is not intended for questions of why, right? So when we get into questions of purpose, we get into questions of why something is the way that it is. Science, I think, has to respectfully bow out. I don't think it has anything to say on those kinds of questions one way or the other. As a result, we might start doing things in science without thinking about why. We might start developing technologies or applying or implementing technologies in the medical or engineering space affecting people's lives. There might be serious societal implications and ethical considerations But if we don't bring faith to bear some kind of moral grounding that informs why related questions, we may run rampant with those things without really thinking through whether this should be done in the first place. And that's perfectly understandable because science isn't meant for asking those kinds of questions. I think that's where faith-based perspectives are really critical. And that's where it can inform the practice of science creating a culture where as scientists were saying, okay, we spend a lot of time talking about how to go about doing something, figuring out how something happens. But let's stop and ask the question, should we be doing this in the first place? Why are we pursuing this? What's the purpose behind what we are doing? So I think that's probably the most critical contribution of faith. On the back end, I would say as a Christian, the way that it comes to bear for me is that as Francis Collins used to say, and that I've now experienced myself, new discoveries are an opportunity for worship, right? So that's another perspective on how faith is brought to bear in my science. I don't necessarily turn to the Holy Spirit for thinking about the next experiment I need to do, right? There's a process for that. It's an empirical process and I need to honor that, right? However, when discoveries are made, it's like scratching at the surface just a little bit more that I know about God now. Maybe, as Johannes Kepler said, Ooh, having seen this, I get to think God's thoughts after him, much long after, but after him nonetheless. And so that's another way in which I think faith really makes my scientific experience even more vibrant than it would be otherwise.
0: You mentioned earlier the loneliness that was your experience setting out in this academic research career. There'll be people listening to this podcast who are preachers, teachers, working in churches. What is it that the church can do to encourage an absence of loneliness, or rather to encourage a sense of vocation that means you're part of a community and where scientific research is fully embedded, celebrated, affirmed, prayed for within the life of the church?
1: It's a great question, Philip, and I think it's related To an even more general question about what appears to be a growing chasm between individuals with a faith based worldview and science. But I actually, as hopefully I have been articulating, I think faith and science have all kinds of shared values, right? Whether it be humility or intellectual curiosity or whatnot. But where I think there is a genuine disconnect right now is among individuals of faith and scientists. Of course, those are not mutually exclusive groups. I have my legs dipped into both pools. But among those who may not share the view of the other, there's an increasing chasm and there is growing mistrust. I think that's really key to this. Even the response that we're seeing in America with regard to how people make decisions about vaccines, right? a lot of very well-meaning people that get easily confused about The decisions they ought to make in their personal lives. And I think a lot of this comes down to not a distrust in science, but in scientists. It is far more effective to develop a relationship with someone over the course of the long haul in terms of influencing their thought processes and informing one another and learning from one another than any eloquent speech or great oration or well laid out scientific facts. At the end of the day, trust. Matters a lot more than facts. And I take the time to explain that, Philip, coming back to your question. I think what faith leaders and pastors can do is to try to reach out to scientists in their broader community who might be willing to develop relationships and cultivate relationships with people in their church. This isn't a program. It's not an evening discussion. It's actually a long haul. It's a long game that we got to work on here because at the end of the day, it comes down to trust. And if there's already a mistrust, it takes a lot of time for people to really be able to see the other side as having anything of value to bring to the table. AAAS American association for the advancement of science here in the U S has a branch called dozer, the dialogue on science, ethics, and religion. A couple of years ago, they ran a wonderful program in some major cities in the U.S. where they brought people from local congregations who maybe didn't have scientists in their immediate sphere of influence together to the lab environments of scientists at places like Emory University or you know somewhere in D.C. perhaps. And one of the most commonly shared sentiments at the end of those interactions was, oh, they're just people. The fact that it is a revelation that the other side are just people, right, tells you where we are in this discussion and how fundamental it is that we start building relationships and trust before we start throwing scientific facts and things like that at one another. Because at that point, we're just talking past each other. So I think the biggest thing that pastors and faith leaders can do is work on identifying individuals you know, in their community, or maybe even outside of their community, but who are willing to invest in building relationships.
0: You mentioned earlier about the fact that new discoveries are for you an opportunity to worship. I wonder if you would say a little bit more perhaps about the way in which your own research and career and calling to be a scientist has shaped your own experience of Christ, your own worship, and perhaps your own prayers?
1: I think one of the most exciting and powerful fields in genomics right now is a field called epigenomics. Some of your listeners may may know, but really it boils down to this idea that while genetic information is coded in DNA, DNA is packaged in such a way that it is able to instruct the cell about which instructions to execute and which ones not to. We talked about that at the top of the hour. But the way that happens is with a complex set of chemical modifications. So the packaging material, if you will, can be modified in certain ways in order to instruct the cell about what to do and which instructions to follow. But the really amazing thing about that is that it's very labile. It's very dynamic. So it's not set in stone the way that your DNA sequence itself might be. So the dynamicity of the function of our genome is really exciting to me, but it also teaches me that nothing is really set in stone. We might be born inclined in one way or the other, and that to some extent boils down to our DNA and what we've inherited. But very rarely is it the situation of determinism. You can't look at your DNA and say, oh, well, because you have this, then definitely you're going to be this way. Something beautiful about that to me, God gives us room. He gives us room to change. He gives us room to grow. Very few things are irreversible, right? There is a lability to the way that our genome is functioning that I think parallels our spiritual life. The environment that we're in or the people that we're around, yeah, it might have us on a certain trajectory, positive or negative, but there's always hope. There's a way to turn back. There's a way to find yourself in a situation that is healthier for you, whether that's physically or whether that's spiritually.
0: That's a hopeful, encouraging, and thought-provoking place to end. Praveen Setapathy, thank you so much for appearing on Talking Theology.
1: Thanks so much for having me. This was very enjoyable. You have been listening to
0: Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall within St. John's College, Durham University. This series of Talking Theology on the relationship between science and faith
1: is being brought to you in partnership with the project Equipping Christian Leaders in an Age of Science. For more information about Cranmer Hall, please visit kranmahal.com.